This is Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. The search engines that we use throughout the day, like Google and Yahoo, aren't just useful digital tools. They're also multi-billion dollar companies that track our browsing habits and sell that data to advertisers and marketers. They also invest heavily in developing artificial intelligence, highly complex algorithms meant to predict and manipulate our behavior. But just as humans have biases, so do the algorithms, and that has real-world implications that can lead to greater inequity, particularly against people of color and women. This is the subject of Dr. Sophia Noble's research. She's an associate professor of gender studies and African-American studies, as well as founder and co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Her best-selling book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism, helped popularize the current interest in AI bias, and she won a 2021 MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowship. She'll also join the UCLA Arts Public Discussion Series 10 Questions on Monday, November 1st, discussing the question, How Do We Fail?, Dr. Sophia Noble, thank you for joining Works in Progress. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get into your research in a moment, but first, you just received the 2021 MacArthur Fellowship, the Genius Grant. What was it like to get that call, and what does that honor mean for the research that you're doing? Well, I can tell you the embarrassing version of it, <laughs> which is I was kept getting a phone call for about a week from this number in Illinois. And I thought it was a robocall, you know, just like someone trying to sell me Uh a warranty on a car I don't own or all the things that are happening. And so I just kept declining it for a week. And then finally, someone texted me from the MacArthur Foundation and said, hi, uh, we're trying to call you. Would you mind picking up your phone? We're going to call you right now. (laughs) And I did pick up and learned that I had been awarded this fellowship and immediately burst into tears. Mm. So uh, I think for scholars in particular, but also probably artists, the MacArthur Fellowship is probably the highest, most esteemed acknowledgement of our work. It's a true validation that you're onto something or that what you're up to matters at least to the MacArthur Foundation, but also more broadly, because I I am aware, knowing other MacArthur geniuses, that a lot of there's like a very secret multi-year process that goes into one getting one of these things. And so a lot of people have to weigh in and also believe that your work matters. So Mm. it was an incredible honor. And I'm I'm actually still processing it all. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm sure. So you've been working on this particular field of research for, you know, the better part of a decade. Um, when did you first realize that there are real systemic problems with these algorithms and the way that our data is collected and then used to manipulate our behavior? Well, you know, I went to grad school after uh, as a kind of a second career. So being a, a professor at UCLA is a second career. My first career I spent in advertising and marketing in corporate America and When I went back to grad school just, you know, over a decade ago, I was reading so many important books and research of scholars who were studying the intersection of technology and society. And that included technologies that predate the Internet. And that these technologies, you know, as they're introduced, they're kind of co-created with people and societies and communities and we make them, but they also remake us. 
And um, I was fascinated by that. And of course, I was thinking about this in the context of the rise of Google, which was on the rise when I was in graduate school. And I was thinking about things like the future of knowledge and information and what what would it mean that Google was starting to displace libraries and librarians and teachers and you know subject matter experts with its version of what was most important. And that was, of course, what showed up on the first page of search results. And so I I started studying that and I started looking at communities and people and how they were represented in search engines. And that's when I realized something was terribly wrong because the way in which so many vulnerable communities and vulnerable people were being misrepresented in search engines really kind of forced a reckoning. And I, I had to kind of study this more systematically. And eventually I wrote a book documenting dozens and dozens of ways in which search engines can actually be incredibly harmful uh, in our society too. Right. And some of those examples you gave are, for example, like if you search for black girls, um, I guess Google has changed some of the results, but it used to be that it would show you pornography, like among the first results that you'd get when you search for that. That's right. And then there's also a lot of white supremacist literature that's online. And and that was how Dylan Roof um, started reading about, you know, white supremacist ideas that led to the shooting uh, of a black church. Can you talk more about some of the real world implications of search results? Like, how do we feel it outside of just using Google? How does that affect us? Well, you know, the challenge here is that when you use Google for banal kinds of, you know, facts, you're likely to get you know, the closest Starbucks to you if you're searching for that, or if you're using it for shopping, it's going to take you to a lot of different kinds of possibilities. And when the stakes are low, it's fairly accurate. In the case of when the stakes start to get higher, that's where, you know, I think we have to look uh, more deeply. And, And so, yes, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about Dylan Roof, because after Dylan Roof had opened fire at Emanuel AME, Um, church in Charleston, South Carolina, in the summer of 2015, um, everyone was trying to figure out what had motivated this, you know, like more specifically beyond that, maybe he was a neo-Nazi or a white nationalist. And um, within about 24 hours, people found his online diary, and this kind of manifesto that he had written. And one of the things that really jumped out to me, I mean, I quickly, I was just trying to process my own shock and grief at what I had witnessed and the news coverage. And when I read his manifesto myself, one part that jumped out at me was where Dylan Reeve says in his own words that he's he's trying to make sense of the news reporting of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. And you have to remember that after George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin, um, Trayvon Martin being kind of a young teenager in Florida who's murdered by a self-appointed neighborhood watch captain. Um, The whole country comes to be divided over whether he should be convicted or not. This is a national news story. And Trayvon Martin really becomes like the guiding light or the symbol that um, of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, it really, people are out in the streets and Black Lives Matter becomes a rallying cry 
over the death of Trayvon Martin. And it's in the news constantly, and Dylan Roof is trying to make sense of it, he says. And he falls down a rabbit hole where he starts discovering all of these white supremacist websites that are putting out propaganda saying that um, white people in America are actually endangered by people of color, by black people, by um, Jewish people. Uh, And he in his own words says, you know, he learns that everything he had learned about multiculturalism and multiracial democracy, in essence, was a lie. And that actually white people are victims. And then he says in his own words, he does more and more searches and he becomes racially aware. And that's when he goes um, shortly thereafter and commits murder. So you think about what happens when you're in Um, these platforms, and you are trying to ask complex social questions, like what's going on with Trayvon Martin and Eric Zimmerman? What is the big deal of this news story? And next thing you know, you're right-wing radicalized and you open fire on unsuspecting African-American worshipers. And I think that's one of the more extreme examples and cases in the book. Um, But, you know, I think if you edge it back, kind of rewind it to looking at how Um, Those early queries that I did back in 2010 and 11 and 12 around Black girls, Latina girls, Asian girls being misrepresented with pornography and having kind of these pornographic ideas represent girl children of color, you see that there are in many ways um, a kind of outsized power and influence that these search engines can have in shaping misperception about communities of color and about vulnerable people. And that to me, of course, has been the focus of my research for the last decade. Yeah. So those are two uh, good examples of the the problem that's at, at, at the heart here of what you're writing about. There are a couple other high profile incidents that, that you also write about in the book that involve racist Google search results, showing Google image search results of black people when you search the keyword gorillas, or uh, tagging African Americans as apes and animals. Or um, you write about someone searching Google Maps for the term n-word house and it showed the white house uh when president obama was in office google did apologize and you know they said that these are glitches that were fixed uh but something that you write in the book that struck me um is that quote algorithmic oppression is not just a glitch in the system but rather is fundamental to the operating system of the web so can you explain how this is systemic and fundamental and not just uh, a few glitches Yes. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do is um, with so many of the examples that are in the book is to situate how over and over and over again, we find these kinds of racist propaganda or misogynistic and racist representations of people. I think we could call one or two uh, problems here and there glitches maybe to the system. But when you start to accumulate lots and lots of examples, and I one of the things I do is, for example, I'm taking examples that are not only in the news media, but also that people in social media are um, tweeting about or posting to Facebook or to different platforms. And what you see is that all kinds of concepts. Um, I remember for a long time when you searched on the keyword beautiful, 
you would get almost um, exclusively images of white women. And, you know, so you have to ask yourself, like, well, what is, who's the imagined user of these platforms that the designers are thinking about as they kind of encode? How are they sorting upon kind of what lines? And of course, that really maps right onto, in the kind of US context, you know, hegemonic beauty standards, right? Who's considered the most beautiful woman in the world or in the US. And so these kinds of issues, uh, whether it's keyword searches on different kinds of professions, uh, you know, looking at professors, for example, and seeing very few Black women or women of color, those I think are really interesting and important cases to look at because what they do is they reinforce kind of social roles and social norms that privilege some people to the kind of authoritative positions of legitimacy in our society and disenfranchise, um, at least in terms of representation, others. And these are struggles that have been going on in many different kinds of arts spaces and social spaces, whether it's kind of how Hollywood misrepresents women or people of color or uh, puts us always kind of in these subservient, servile roles, whether it's the legitimation of only certain kinds of men of wealth and power who can uh, run for political office or be heads of universities. There's lots of ways in which these technologies, I think, double down and reinforce the power systems that already exist by making it seem perfectly normal and legitimate rather than a site of political and social struggle that we are in to further democratize our society. Where do the racist or misogynistic biases come into the algorithm? Like, is the problem that the Silicon Valley workforce isn't diverse enough? And if you had more women and people of color hired by Google and other companies, then these algorithms would be less biased? Or is there a, a, a deeper issue here? Well, the you know, I really try to spend some time unpacking the myths that we have about how we get these results. So probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are thinking, well, you know, Professor Noble, those results aren't Google's fault. Those results are just the result of what's most popular or what most people are searching for. And part of the reason we believe that is because that's one thing that Google says kind of in its own defense. But then that kind of really begs the question that if Google is not responsible for its own products and services, then who is? Because certainly the public has no access to its proprietary algorithms and has no ability to even know what's influencing the kind of results uh, that we get. And certainly it is not just a matter of what's most popular, um, because if that were the case or we, we accepted that on its face, then it would mean all minoritized populations, sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, gender minorities, would always be subject to the tyranny of the majority. I don't know. I think we should unpack that, right? I think we should spend some time with whether we think that that's how we want um, knowledge to be presented or information. Right. So what I really try to focus on is helping people understand what Google search truly is, which is it's a it's a global advertising platform. And those who pay the most through uh, Google's kind of AdWords program, which is its keyword optimization service, 
And so those who kind of with the most capital and those who have the most technical skill, who know how to do things like um, encode the right words in the metadata at their websites and so forth, are really able to dominate and control what makes it to the first page. And of course, what makes it to the first page of search is the most important because most people who use search engines don't go beyond the first page. So that real estate is prime. It's saved for those who pay the most uh, typically. And there are words that are optimized. And of course, this you know begs the question in the case of girls of color, even if all the girls of color in the United States emptied out all their piggy banks, um, and savings accounts, they would never have as much money as the porn industry and would never be able to compete. And so um, those are the kinds of things that I really try to unpack and help us understand. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that before your current career as a scholar and researcher, uh, before academia, you did work in marketing and advertising, uh, particularly building corporate brands and selling products to customers of color. Um, how did that work experience prepare you for doing this kind of research? Well, you know, even when I was in corporate America, I was focused on trying to get brands and companies to kind of do right by ethnic and multicultural consumers, um, LGBTQ and um, women's markets. I was a part of, um, you know, companies and both on the brand side and on the agency side that were interested in um, targeting particular consumer groups and really marketing to them and through them. We used to call this like tastemaker um, kinds of like events and public relations and advertising um, that was highly aspirational. And of course, one of the things we know is that if you want to kind of sell through a product to the general market, using highly aspirational African-American celebrities and artists, for example, is is an effective way of doing that. So, you know, I was really a part of those kinds of uh, marketing campaigns and my friends who worked in marketing at all kinds of different companies were also working in that in the 90s and early 2000s. And um, that really helped me understand Google as kind of a hyper-targeted advertising machine, which is to say in mass media, kind of pre-digital mass media, We would use things like demographics or region or um, age, gender, marital status, education level, all the things we could kind of think about to, to, to create advertising that would appeal to a certain demographic in the society, right, that we wanted, you know, to be the customer or consumer. But in the kind of post digital or the the rise of the digital um, kinds of advertising opportunities, you could take personal identifying information or traces that people would leave on the internet about who they were and what they were doing and what they were interested in. And now you could hyper target people. And that to me is actually very different than running a commercial on BET or on ESPN, right? Um, Trying to get like the demographic you think that's watching one of those cable channels. Now we're 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 gleaning that we have such sophisticated technology that it can have just a few data points about you and what your online behavior. And it can not only target you with certain kinds of ads and products and services, but it can also manipulate you, manipulate your behavior and um, convince you using 
either your own values or things that you've shown an interest in in the past in ways that I think are incredibly dangerous and um, in ways that people don't have much choice over. They don't always even know that that's happening to them. You do look at policy solutions in your book, and I know that there are some bills that are being considered by Congress. The tech sector pushes back and says, you know, Congress is really kind of clueless when it comes to these tech issues. And I think that the public, to some degree kind of agrees with that. You know, there are these viral flubs like when um, Senator Richard Blumenthal asked if Facebook would commit to ending Finsta, you know, Finsta being uh, fake Instagram accounts, or when Mark Zuckerberg was asked how Facebook makes money and he said, Senator, we run ads. So there is this kind of popular idea that Congress really isn't up to the task of regulating Silicon Valley. What do you think can be done and should be done to change the power dynamic in how our data is being collected and used? Yeah, one of my um, favorite and most hilarious memes from congressional hearings was one where I won't mention which senator, but where one of the senators holds up a floppy disk and asks Mark Zuckerberg, if I use this floppy disk of 50 free hours of AOL, is that the same as Facebook? <laughs> it makes me laugh. I can't even get the joke out because it's so hilarious to me. Yeah. But, you know, like just to kind of get at like the level of, of technical literacy that's happening right now in Congress. Right. Of course, that makes the public incredibly vulnerable because the tech lobbyists are the most powerful lobbyists in the world. And so they're really able to set the agenda and steer the regulatory conversations right now in their own interest. And, you know, you should always be suspicious when you hear tech company CEOs get in front of Congress and say, sure, we'd love to have regulation regulate us. Um, you better believe that um, in the back door, they've handed over the, the optimal legislation and wording that is in their interest. So, you know, I think that, of course, the public is vulnerable to the kind of capture of electoral politics that has happened by corporations in our country. And it's incredibly distressing. And, um, you know, it means that that can't be the only route for consumer protection. I mean, we certainly have other agencies in the kind of federal, state and local governments that can have oversight on different kinds of technology implementations. I mean, school boards and anybody who loves a child that is in school, K through 12, can take an interest um, or who cares about um, the future of education can take an interest in the kinds of technologies that are being adopted uh, by their school district. And we have some very chilling reports that have that have you know hit the news in the past year about things like Pasco County, Florida, where law enforcement bought some type of snake oil software that they were told could predict who the future criminals in that county would be. And they mm -hmm. went to the school board and uh, the school district and asked for all the student records and then ran all the student records through their software and began actively harassing kids and their family members with the belief that this AI had predicted who that those kids would be future criminals. I mean, this wow. is absolutely absurd. It's dangerous. It's a violation of our civil rights. And yet those kinds of AI and technologies are being implemented all over 
and they're, they're in the UC system. There's very little oversight over the kinds of AI that's getting used by whether it's kind of um, campus police departments or um, student success algorithms that are predicting which students should be admitted into universities and colleges around the country or which ones are likely to succeed. I mean, there are so many places beyond what Congress can do where we can have oversight over the adoption. Every place, every nook and cranny where money can be made from selling different kinds of predatory software, you better believe is being exploited from our biometrics to education, financial services and banking, um, housing um, and employment kinds of decisions. So I, of course, I keep my eye on as much of this as possible and try to talk about it and help people understand that we don't have to just rely upon Congress. We also can be engaged and active right where we are in our own lives too. Well, like what about our own personal behavior? Like, you know, I use Google for everything from getting directions to looking for banana bread recipes. Should I stop using Google for like reading the news or looking up more politically sensitive issues? I mean, and, and how about you? Like, have you changed the way you use Google or other search engines as a result of your research? Well, first of all, I'm going to need you to send me the banana bread recipes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so of course, I use these technologies. I mean, a fundamental dimension of my ability to work at UCLA requires that I use Google because the UC system outsourced its entire IT backbone to Google several years ago. So all of our mail is Gmail and all of our kind of um, tech infrastructure for the most part at UCLA and across the whole entire system is Google. So I couldn't be a professor at UCLA and not use these technologies. All right. Mm -hmm. So it's a condition of my employment, um, so to speak. I also know when I'm engaging with many of these technologies that there are stakes right? So I'm hyper aware. I use them for certain things, especially around online shopping, because I find that Google indexes more places where I might want to shop than others. But I also use other uh, platforms and um, search engines, you know, that are less likely to track me or where I might have like a a modicum. And I mean that a modicum of of privacy where maybe there isn't as much tracking. But of course, anything you do on the internet is visible. There's no such thing as privacy on the internet. Um, It's actually a little bit of a misnomer when we see the calls for privacy, data privacy laws. Um, Someone can always see what you're doing. And of course, the Edward Snowden revelations years ago helped mm-hmm. us kind of understand that. So I think um, I use these technologies, but I'm always clear about the tension between their affordances and the consequences of using them. And there are some things I don't use and that I really am such a drag as a mom <laughs> in trying to get my kids not to use, which makes me the least popular mom you can imagine. Um, because my son, who's in elementary school, says things like, why can't she be like the regular moms and just let me have TikTok or let uh, me have, you know, Instagram or or Facebook? And of course, I'm not going for it. So, right. yeah. I'm in this in the same boat as a as a person. I just have heightened knowledge of how maybe how horrible it is that we're ensnared in these things. Yeah. 
Um, can you sense if your research and, and the research that um, people in this field are doing are making a difference? Because, you know, there have been all these like high profile stories. There's uh, that software engineer, James Demore at Google, who wrote this anti-diversity screed saying that women aren't as good software engineers as men. You know, he got in trouble for that. There was the prominent departure of Timnit Gebru, who's a black artificial intelligence researcher who left Google. There's that documentary on Netflix, Coded Bias, that you were part of. So I feel like I keep reading and seeing stories about this issue. Um, and of course, your book that came out, Algorithms of Oppression in 2018. Is there traction? Like, are, is, is there movement in Silicon Valley to... Um, ameliorate some of these issues? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, it's interesting because at the point that I entered the field uh, as an assistant professor, yeah, almost 10 years ago, nine years ago, I felt like I was pushing a boulder up a mountain. When I would go to conferences or I'd give public talks and I would say, part of the problem here is that we have value systems that are encoded into AI and algorithms. It's not just what the users do and that we don't understand how to use the technology. And it doesn't really matter what the intent of the programmers is because the systems are value laden. Now that was like a very, very difficult argument to make 10 years ago because when I was making it, people would respond and they would say things like, well, you know, Sophia, at the end of the day, computer programming is really just applied math and math can't be racist, math can't be sexist. So, you know, that's ludicrous. And over the years, I, you know, got better and better retorts because I would I would have the research and I would be trying to explain like the what what the research means. And, you know, now it's really easy to just like debunk that. I mean, I say back to those kinds of arguments, well, that's a little bit like saying to be human is just to be cells and mitochondria. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just it, like that is such a very, very narrow framing of what computer code or AI, um, narrow AI is and what these systems are. These systems are social because they are applied in the social world, just like being human is a social experience as well it is, as it is can be atomized down to mitochondria. That's not really the most helpful lens for understanding the human condition, let's say. Mm -hmm. So I think um, now, of course, we have many, the, the things that you mentioned and the people that you mentioned, there's, uh, I, I have witnessed a lot of women, women of color, LGBTQ um, scholars, journalists, and activists who have made these issues legible um, in really important ways. Um, so much so that people who were former tech evangelists and who were the beneficiaries of working in tech companies and being tech leaders have now become reformers and uh, are, you know, somehow weirdly going to the front of the line and getting the microphone to say, oh, since 2016, we've been tracking these problems. And of course, some of us were writing about these things in 2011, 2012. And women of color were writing about the problems of racism and the internet as far back as 2000. And people were writing about the challenges of technology and society decades before that. 
So yes, we, mm-hmm. we have a different environment now and we are able to have much more sophisticated, much more nuanced and much more specific conversations about these problems. But unfortunately, that's because there's so much more evidence of harm and there's so many more people being falsely accused by algorithms or being put in prison or jail or not getting jobs or being discriminated in uh, financial services or housing. And that's the really the most unfortunate part. And the, to me, kind of the, the more frightening part is that we just have so much more ubiquitous uptake mm-hmm. of AI and algorithms mm-hmm. and not enough understanding of the consequences. Right. And now in terms of um, the debate moving forward, it seems like among researchers who study the harmful effects of digital technologies, there's sort of the reformer camp and the abolitionist camp. It reminds me a little bit about the debate around uh, policing. Is that right? I mean, where, where do you stand on that issue? Yeah, I think that's really true. I think that the reformers would say, let's make these technologies better and less discriminatory. And there's a whole array of people who are in many different fields from computer science to robotics to communications, media studies, information studies, gender studies, who are thinking about how to improve these technologies. And especially you see this around the debates over facial recognition software. We know, for example, the study of the three Black women, Joy Bulwamini, Tamit Jabru, Deb Raji, who did the gender shade study that found that facial recognition software was least viable and effective when it looked at Black women's faces Mm -hmm. and was much more likely to kind of mischaracterize or misclassify Black women's faces. So there are people who say, let's make those technologies better and technologies like it, or let's distribute the harm randomly rather than predictably (laughs) against women and people of color. Like, I mean, those are truly some of the, I read the papers, those are some of the arguments that get made. I think that there's another group of scholars of which I include myself um, and uh, who think of themselves more as in the abolitionist tradition. Um, I think, you know, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, a black woman professor at Princeton, really um, her book, The New Jim Code, really uh, Race After Technology, really helped us understand that some of these technologies maybe should not exist because their very existence is harmful um, and that they cannot be kind of controlled uh, or not used in nefarious ways. And this would be, you know, of course, technologies like deep fake, you know, the superimposing of voice or in, or image, uh, you know, kind of making fraudulent um, video and audio that right. uh, of people saying things that they didn't, you know, predictive policing, um, other kinds of technologies that, you know, we would probably say their existence can only exacerbate harm. Um, you know, people may have seen recently floating around Twitter and Instagram, these kind of robo cop dogs, um, right? So these like robotic dogs that have military grade weapons strapped on their backs that are pointed <laughs> at people right, in terrifying. the world. Like, you know, who thought that we needed that? So, you know, I think there are much like I would say probably some of us are more like some of the scientists who knew that like the making of atomic weapons would change the world. 
And just because you could do it didn't mean you should do it. And, you know, that could be said about, I think, some of the kinds of predictive technologies and analytics that are that are coming online now that we worry about tremendously and think there should be some type of government oversight and uh, regulation to protect the public and protect consumers mm-hmm. from these these kinds of projects. Yeah. You know, it makes me think, too. Um... There's a long history of technologies being developed by the military for military purposes that, you know, once that technology advances, it sort of gets handed down to police forces. And so you see that with anti-riot technology, you see that with drones. Are you looking at what's being used by the military and how that might end up sort of becoming part of the fabric of our uh, consumer technology? Well, yes. I mean, there's no way to not watch where... Uh, military investments are remaking all kinds of practices. Um, The very existence of the internet was a military project, right? Right. So this was a kind of a funded by um, the Department of Defense. And what a lot of people don't even realize is that the kind of early internet was designed to sequester certain types of scientific and military secrets um, away from the third world or the non-aligned movement um, and to like ensure that the United States and its allies could trade um, scientific knowledge, share scientific knowledge and track it without it falling into the hands, so to speak, of, you know, enemies of the state. Hmm. And so, you know, um, these origin stories to me are so fascinating. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have to have historians and um, sociologists and anthropologists and people who have really studied these uh, histories because it helps us understand what our futures might look like. And of course, you you nailed it. I mean, drones, robotics, um, you know, the the police dog, that's a a military invention. I think they were working on that at Stanford and, and other research labs. Of course, the relationship between university research labs and the military um, or law enforcement is also a place to watch. Um, mm-hmm. And and most of these companies, quite frankly, Google, Facebook, they started out as projects either funded by the Department of Defense or the National Science Foundation, and you know were kind of subsidized by the public. And I, I always watch the people like uh, Stuart Russell, who's a professor at UC Berkeley who is really kind of considered one of the fathers, if you will, or like one of the most canonical thinkers around AI. And, you know, recently he, and his work is taught in over 1600 computer science departments around the world. I mean, he's extremely famous and he's kind of, his logic has been at the bedrock of the way we've developed AI. And he said that, you know, a few years ago when he saw autonomous weapons deployed that killed people in Libya with no human oversight whatsoever. The weapons autonomously decided to drop bombs on Libya, that he had a complete 180. He had just a total 180 about his work and the, the field of AI. And he, you know, now he spends so much of his time um, working with the United Nations and other governing bodies over the control of autonomous weapons 
I think that we have to take very seriously what we see in those spaces, because a lot of the beta testing of some of the most harmful things happen in those ways through those kinds of projects um, before they become normalized, like on the streets of Los Angeles. And um, so we have a, you know, we have things to be concerned about and it could be other ways. And we have to actually care about it and, and not, you know, in much the way we could have cared about climate change differently uh, in the seventies, you know, before we were kind of at, in like a state of red alert. I kind of think we, we may be that in that place around many of these technologies a couple decades from now. Yeah. So just to wrap up, you know, this podcast comes from the School of the Arts and Architecture. And so we're interested in looking at the role that the arts can play in many different fields. And I sense that you also see a role for the arts in raising awareness around this issue, because the center that you uh, co-direct, the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, recently announced that you are creating the role of artistic director and inaugural storyteller in residence, um, a woman named Oge Egbuono. Um, tell me about her and uh, more broadly, how you uh, see the arts uh, playing a role in raising awareness of this. Well, we just, you know, we met Ogi Ibono, who's a filmmaker. She produced and directed this incredible film called Invisible Portraits that came out just shortly after and kind of coincidentally after the uprising for racial justice after the murder of George Floyd in 2020 last year. And she, um, her film was so profoundly humanizing, um, humanizing around Black women's experiences. And, you know, for us, it resonated because I think we understood that to talk about technology is to kind of talk about the dehumanization, right? The pornification of women and girls of color, um, how that is a dehumanizing kind of um, project that makes life harder for people who are misrepresented in these ways. And her film, her art was such a poetic, humanizing storytelling about the Black experience in the United States that we wanted her to come and work with us. We wanted to be around her. We wanted her to be around us. And we wanted to think about how do we keep the human experience and human agency present when we're talking about the harms to vulnerable people? How do we keep vulnerable people understood as human beings and, um, as people worthy of love and empathy and care. And so we, you know, we, we are artists ourselves. I mean, Sarah and I in our own ways, and we, we feel like art and culture are very, very powerful ways of making complex issues around the things we study legible to the public. And, um, we think that's a very powerful site of resistance too, that people not give up different aspects of our humanity to automation and that there's something lost and flattened in that process and that we might want to recover and um, hold on to. So um, we're really thrilled that Ogie's with us and we're, you know, always imagining and thinking about things to do out of the center, um, including just supporting her ability to keep telling stories. I mean, we think that's really a, a powerful antidote. And for all of the artists who are listening, I mean, 
I meet so many artists who feel like these issues are not like they're like, oh, I'm not a technical person or I don't I don't I don't know or I don't care about that. But they're your brilliant storytellers, your brilliant designers, your makers of space where people can gather, um, you know, architects and designers who can facilitate human connection. And um, we think that's a really as much as public policy is very important. Um, art and culture and connection are also equally important. And so um, so it's a perfect, you know, opportunity, I think, for me to get to be a guest on your podcast because um, we have so much respect for artists and the arts. Well, thank you. That respect is uh, obviously appreciated and, and shared. Um, well, Dr. Sophia Noble, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to speak to Works in Progress and thank you for your research as well. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Sophia Noble. She teaches gender studies and African-American studies at UCLA, directs the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, wrote the book Algorithms of Oppression, and received the 2021 MacArthur Genius Grant. On Monday, November 1st, she'll join oncology chaplain Michael Esselin and artist Anna Sue Hoy to explore the question, how do we fail? as part of the UCLA Arts Public Discussion Series, 10 Questions. You've been listening to Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. Thanks for listening, and be well. Be well.